First nine verses is our, uh, there I am, first nine verses is our, is our study for today. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? He answered him, sir, let it alone. This year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I prayed a lot this week regarding this message that someone in our auditorium during the hearing of it would come to know Christ as Savior because it's such a critical message. People are continually seeking the latest conference or speaker or book or some sort of teaching nugget to improve their lives. Conferences seem to be better attended based on who the speaker is, whether he's well-known or well-liked, and often that can be a good thing, but sometimes it's not. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Many desire to be entertained, not enlightened. They want to leave feeling good, encouraged, and uplifted. Whether that information is sound or not, even having their pastor use a super soaker to squirt them with water during the preaching service. It's astonishing that James chapter 3 is a warning to me and a warning to all who would want to teach the gospel that teachers incur a greater accountability because they are opening the word. I mean, it's a Oftentimes I shudder standing here right now because I'm expected to exposit these nine verses to you and explain them what they mean, explain what they mean, and I'm standing in the place of Christ to to rightfully divide the word of truth. Can you imagine if I took out a water gun and started squirting you as an illustration, or or uh, just the nonsense of that, the 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 illogic thinking of trying to entertain a crowd? They leave feeling good, but the information is not sound. In what other realm would we find that acceptable? In what other realm of society would we want to be entertained, not told the truth? At our doctor? Would you want your doctor to get the, the word that you have leukemia or cancer? And It's great. He pulls out a water gun and shoots you? Or juggles for you? Isn't this great? Off you go. Have a great day. And you're like, I feel great. Meanwhile, you're dying inside? How about your mechanic? Would you want him to be honest with you? You want your fire alarm to give the right information or make you feel good? I mean, it's 3 in the morning. I wish that thing would, you know, I don't want that thing going off. I say all this to say that Jesus would not be a sought-after conference speaker in many circles today. We wouldn't be able to turn on Christian television and find the Lord because often he is saying things that actually drive people away. He's not preaching things that people are eager to hear even though they needed to hear it. Jesus would not be a guest on CNN to tell us about society's problems. Jesus would not be invited even into many churches 
This is what's happening in Luke 13 as Jesus starts to explain some things that people don't like to hear. And I want to break down the message in this way today. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus gives a theology of sin and suffering. And in verses 6 to 9, Jesus gives a theology of repentance. Okay, so in verses 1 to 5, Jesus gives a theology of sin and suffering. And in verses 6 to 9, Jesus gives a theology of repentance. That's how we're going to break it up today. Now, in the previous couple of messages in Luke, it's been all about judgment. In fact, if you are in your Bibles and you go back to chapter 12 last week, just a quick reminder that Jesus came to die and divide. He came, his death and our response to his death divides family, divides people, and it's based on our response to Christ. And he, he warns these people who can look at weather phenomenon, right? And how many of us are checking weather.com Thursday, Friday, and we see the temperatures dropping, we see the snow coming, we have school and government officials keeping an eye on this and making decisions based on the information that they're receiving, the signs that they're gathering, yet people will not recognize the spiritual signs that are gathering and the spiritual judgment that is just on the horizon. They keep pushing that off instead of what Jesus encourages them to do at the end of Luke chapter 12, settle with your accuser now. You remember this? You know, how many of you are going to go to court knowing that you're guilty and try to fight it when the, when the uh, inevitable result will be that the judge says, guilty, pay it all, go to prison. If you're guilty on the way, don't go to Judge Judy so she can yell at you and say, uh, verdict for the plaintiff, you've got to pay everything. No, before you get to the judge, say, hey, I know I'm wrong. Can we settle this now? And that's what God desires from all of us. Here we are on the way. 25, 45, 65, 85, however old we are, we're on the way. And that way does not have a marked out end. In other words, there's no notification coming for us, death, three months from today. No, no notification. It will come suddenly for some of us expectantly for some of us, but it will come for all of us. So while we're on the way to that point, the return of Christ or our own death, it makes total sense for us to settle with the accuser. So if you were here last week and if you were thinking about it, and even if you're thinking about it now, a question should be coming in your mind. If I'm supposed to settle with my accuser now, before I come to the judgment, what will be the natural question? Okay, okay, good question. We understand that God is our accuser. We've got to settle with him. So now we understand that. Now what's the next question? How do I settle? How do I, okay, how do I settle? Right. How am I going to make the settlement? And that's what Jesus is going to describe here. But while he's in the midst of this, we have some people, because in some, in some translations, verse 1 of chapter 13 actually says now. I don't know if your translation says that. Some do. Now. So in other words, this question is coming right on the heels of what Jesus just said. So instead of saying Boy, we really need to settle with the accuser. Instead of recognizing those spiritual signs, they divert. They divert the question. And they begin asking a question that is frequently asked in our day as well. Some bad things have happened. How do you explain that? Okay. Why did this happen? How could God allow this? Please explain this to us, Lord. And they bring up a specific incident where Pilate mingled the blood of Galileans with their sacrifice. Now, we've asked these type of questions like after September 11th or after natural disasters. Uh, What was it, two weeks ago Sunday night, this Muslim family is driving home from their vacation in Florida and they get hit by a drunk driver going the other way. 
other way on the, uh, on the road, 2.30 in the morning, they're all instantaneously dead. Just like I said, death will come. Could have been any one of us. We've traveled late at night on the highways before. I'm sure you have too. Um, or the death of missionaries. Remember just last year there was that guy who just made it over to, um, I forget the nation now. Um, some of you will remember this. It's slipping my mind right now. But he was driving to the store with his wife and he hadn't been there for two weeks and he was shot dead. So, so, so why do these things happen? We can divide them into two categories. Okay, we can divide these situations in life that happen into two categories. Atrocities and accidents. Atrocities and accidents. In other words, atrocities would be things that are, that are caused by evil people directly, whereas accidents are things that are just kind of natural disasters or random things that may happen to us in life. And, and so in our first section, verses 1 to 5, this theology of sin and suffering, both are actually mentioned, one by the people that posed the question to the Lord and the other by the Lord. So let's start with the atrocity. The atrocity. The atrocity is the murder of these Galileans. And they were actually murdered while they were offering their sacrifices. This is mentioned to us in verse number one, when the people come and say, hey, what about those guys, and maybe ladies, that, Paul, that Pilate uh, killed while they were participating in worship? Think about this. Uh, it is most likely the Passover because this would be the time when individuals themselves would bring their sacrifices to be offered in, in atonement for their sins. And they had been killed by Pilate. The Bible says their blood was actually mingled. It may have been while they were in the very act of sacrificing their animals. In any case, the blood of the animal is coming off the altar and the blood of the Galileans is being mingled with that. If there's any question to the character of Pilate, you know, sometimes we see him as kind of this star-crossed character who just got caught in a situation and washed his hands of the Lord. Look what he's doing here. He has a hatred and a disdain for the religious practices of the Jews. And he had some of them murdered while they were worshiping. Jewish historians note that atrocities like this happened often, but this particular event isn't mentioned in either Josephus or Philo, who are two uh, prominent Jewish historians. They do mention, however, Joseph and Philo, Josephus and Philo, three other incidents where Pilate unleashes this type of violence, and they all, all three of those instances occur during religious customs. Think about this. These people are coming to the Lord and saying, did you hear? And this may be like a newsworthy event, a, a breaking news type thing. Maybe Jesus hadn't heard about this, but, but the people are coming to him and saying, what about those Galileans who were murdered by Pilate during their acts of worship? What do you have to say about that? What, what about that, Lord? Was it a year ago or so, that church in Texas? People are singing. I mean, they're, they're in a house of worship, and the madman comes in and what was it, killed 25 or 30 of them during worship? How do you explain that? How should we look at situations like this? How should we think of them? Should we view them as martyrs or heroes? Should we hail them as Jewish nationalists? Jesus' response gives insight into what the people who even posed the question were thinking. Because they don't say anything except hey, there's some guys that died and Pilate killed them. And Jesus, understanding their question, says, do you think, this is verse 2, do you think that those guys who died, men and women perhaps, Galileans, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So obviously what the people were thinking is that they died in that manner because perhaps because of some undiscovered sin that they had not confessed. 
And this was their fate that was predetermined because their own sin had something to do with this. It is known to us today as the idea of karma, that our fate is determined by some previous action that we had in life. I can give you a couple examples of this. One of, you I give, one of them I gave you a long time ago, and I'll say it again. The other happened just this morning. And I'm thinking about it. It's just amazing how the Lord did this. But I remember a teenage girl came into my office once back in Lapeer and was confessing something about uh, she, her parents had told her not to go to a party, and she went anyway, and she had a flat tire on the way. And she said to me, and I know the Lord was, that the Lord was getting me for my sin, and so now I know I don't need to say anything to my parents because it was kind of like a tit for tat. I disobeyed, and God got me. That's the idea of karma, that every sin we commit, God is going to somehow retaliate, and so these people died as the Galileans because there's some undiscovered sin in their life. Just this morning, just this morning, we pick up the kids this morning, these sweet children, and I won't say their name because it's recording, but one of them falls out of their seat because they didn't have their seatbelt on. And walking up the steps, Tiana says, that's karma. She said that. Isn't that funny? They were just thinking about this. He didn't put his seatbelt on. He got it. And it's cute. I'm not saying anything in a negative fashion there. It's just, kind of, it's just kind of funny that that's the idea I was thinking about today. But that's what the world buys into, that, that I'm gonna, if, if I do something, God is going to retaliate. And this is their theology of sin and suffering. You got cancer because of some problem in your life. So confess it. And if you don't believe that this is the Jewish way of thinking, what do you think Job's friends were saying to him? In Job chapter 4, 7, this is just one of many instances that we could look at in Job. Job is struggling as no person has ever struggled before regarding suffering. Lost all his children, lost all his livestock. Now his physical health is struggling. He's sitting in ashes and scraping his boils with a pot. And his friends, to console him, said, you got some sin problem. Because, Job 4, verse 7, who was it that was innocent that ever perished like this? Also in John 9, when the, when the disciples encounter the blind man, remember what they say? Who has sinned, this man or his parents, that has caused him to be born blind? As if every atrocity or accident that happens can be attributed to some previous sin in our life. As a rule, Jewish theology ascribed suffering to some sort of prior sin. And that's what these people are saying here to Jesus. Is this what we are to think when we hear of an atrocity? Are we to think of the Muslim family who was killed on the way back from their vacation that, well, God hates Muslims? Or this is some secret sin in their life? Is that what we're to think? This is deserved because of their personal, perhaps, secret sin. Hold that thought for just a minute, and let's look at the accident part. The answer, of course, is no, but I'll explain in just a minute. Look at the accident part first. So Jesus heard that from the guys that were asking him the question, and then he followed up with the accident side of things. Okay? An atrocity is different from an accident. He brings up a different kind of tragedy, one that is not caused by anyone. It just kind of happened. Circumstance. This is verse number four. The 18... This is verse 4. The 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? This tower was probably some sort of guard or lookout tower that stood at the corner of the south and east wall of Jerusalem and either during construction or repair collapsed and killed 18 people. And Jesus says, do you think 
that they were killed, that this tower fell on them because they were somehow worse sinners than everybody else? Is that what we should make the connection between sin and tragedy that our suffering and death comes because of some personal problem in our lives? What is, the, what is often thought at these moments in our day regarding accidents and atrocities? Well, I think we can answer that question by looking at the titles of Christian books. Where is God when it hurts? When God hides his face. Where is God in my suffering? I mean, these are good questions. These are legitimate things to ask. But it's not the starting point where Jesus goes. And this is what I mean about Jesus not being welcome in certain religious circles even today as a teacher because he makes some pretty strong claims. In both answers, both to the accident and to the atrocities, Jesus says two things that are very similar. He says in the first response, do you think they were worse sinners? And in the second response, he's saying, do you think they were worse offenders? Do you think somehow their sin rose to a different level and that's why they were punished and others weren't? You know, 18 died and few escaped. Or certain Galileans were killed and certain ones escaped. Do you, think, do you think it was the worst sinners that God got that day? He says no in both instances. No. No. And then he follows it up with an urgent command saying, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let me make four quick thoughts. We're still in the theology of sin and suffering, but let me make four quick thoughts about what Jesus is instructing here. Real, real quick. First, Jesus doesn't deny that sin brings tragedy. Jesus doesn't deny that. In fact, he's kind of saying that. Do you think they were worse sinners? Is not, he's, not, he's not making that comparison, but he's, he's not denying that sin brings tragedy. But secondly, he refuses or denies that tragedy is due to the sin of its victims. He denies that tragedy is due to the sin of its victims, and he does that emphatically twice by saying, do you think they were worse sinners? Do you think they were worse offenders? Thirdly, Jesus assumes the universal nature of sin by saying we're sinners. He's, he's assuming that all are sinners. And then fourthly, he is also asserting that death is the natural outcome of sin. One more time. He doesn't deny that sin brings tragedy. He denies that tragedy is due to the sin of its victims. He assumes universal sin. All have sinned, Romans 3.23. And he asserts also that death is the natural outcome of sin. But he is specifically saying that it's not some specific sin in their life that caused it. When this happens, we should not think of two specific things. So when sin and suffering, especially when tragedy or accident happens, here are two things that should not enter into our mind. First of all, we don't deny that God is compassionate. We don't think, where is God, or God messed up, or God is so mean, or God is unkind. When bad things happen to us, I mean, <laughs> the, I think the most astonishing book, when bad things happen to good people. I mean, what, a, what a statement that is. But uh, we don't think of the lack of God's compassion. We don't think, where is God, or, or was he not sovereign, or whatever. And we also do not think of some specific sin that must have been committed in their lives that caused this. At the time of tragedy, and this is a key thought, at the time of tragedy, the warning is for the living. Okay, The warning is for the living, ourselves included. And the warning is that if you don't repent, you're going to die too. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And Romans 6.23, 
the wages of sin is death. In fact, Jesus is saying at moments like this, instead of thinking of the guilt of someone else and what that guilt may have caused in their lives, you should start thinking about your guilt and your sin and have you done anything to solve that problem. Living in a sinful world brings about situations like this. Death is the natural outcome of sin. I love being able to talk to unbelievers and especially people who are very ignorant about the Bible because it forces me to think through things more than I would when I'm talking to believers who just kind of take for granted everything I say is biblical and there's no really pushback on the answer. You know, there's no really pushback on the Unbelievers will push back in a good way because they're, they're thinking through issues that maybe Christians have just taken for granted all their lives. And I made a statement to someone recently that, that death, is the result of, death is the result of sin and they not ever been familiar with that before. Think of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were immediately cast out of the garden, right? And, and they were naked and not ashamed before they had sinned. But as soon as they sinned, they realized they were naked and desired to cover themselves up with fig leaves. That's why in children's material, Adam and Eve are always conveniently standing behind a bush. Okay? But when they, die, when, they, when they spiritually die after eating that fruit, God does what for them? Covers them with animal skins. And to cover them with animal skins, it's probably pretty uncomfortable to carry around live animals with you to cover yourself. These animals had been killed. Death. This is, the, this is the first sign that we have of physical death that God had to put to death some of these animals, or maybe Adam and Eve did it, to cover themselves with skins. And Adam and Eve instantly became spiritually dead. And this is something we're going to talk about here. Instead of thinking about the guilt of others when atrocities happen, we must think about our own guilt and how we can settle that guilt on the way with God. And the response is repentance. Okay? And now let's move to the second part, the theology of repentance. Here's, here's, let's, let's, let's walk ourselves up to it because this is the most important part. If you've not been listening, this is the most important part. So God is, or Christ has said to these people that judgment is on its way. You can see the natural signs. Don't you see the signs coming? Judgment is coming. Will you settle with your accuser? And they divert to other people's, talking about other people's sin and guilt. And Jesus says, don't talk about other people's sin and guilt. You worry about your own sin and guilt. Well, what am I supposed to do with the sin and guilt? Because I'm being accused by God of sin and guilt. What am I supposed to do? And he says twice, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless, he says it twice, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He says it in verse 3, and he says it in verse Five, and he includes all. You will all likewise perish. Jesus isn't saying that if you don't repent, a tower is going to fall on you. Jesus isn't saying that if you don't repent, Pilate's going to kill you. He doesn't mean likewise perish in that way. He's talking about something else. Jesus demands that we repent if we don't want to die. He's not talking about physical death. There is no avoidance of that. All of us, by nature of being sinners, are dying right now. Some of us faster than others. And unless some accident or atrocity takes us first, we will die of natural causes someday. All of us want to die at home and sleep in our beds. Right? What was the joke that was said? Uh, I want to die. Uh, uh, stupid. I shouldn't even say it, so I won't. Um, uh, but the, the idea, I mean, what is, what is the death rate? 100%. <laughs> Think about that. 
You know, they says, well, what is the, uh, you know, the rate of death by uh, such a... You know, the, the rate of death is 100%. You go, to the, you go to the hospital and you visit the maternity ward and it's so wonderful and you're holding this new child and somewhere in that hospital, someone is dying and the child you're holding is dying. That's physical death. Jesus isn't talking about that because otherwise, Luther would still be here. Spurgeon would still be here, right? Repentance, they They repented. We believe they were Christians and they repented. So you cannot avoid physical death. So what type of death are you trying to avoid? Well, the death you are trying to avoid is much more severe than the physical death. Revelation talks about it being the, quote, second death. Isn't this wonderful? If you're an unbeliever, this is what you have to look forward to. You die, and then you die again. And you continue to be spiritually dead for the rest of eternity. And the only way to avoid that is by repenting. Physical death, death is always in the Bible defined as separation. Always defined as separation. Physical death is when your spirit or soul departs from your body. When you lay cousin Jeff in the ground who's died, you are not, everyone says, that's not Jeff. Whether Jeff is gone. Uh, Mildred is gone. Those people are gone. That is their body. Their soul has departed. It is separated from their body. We, we can't discern when that happens. When their brain dead is when their heart stops. God knows that, but the moment it happens, that soul departs the body and it doesn't come back because it's appointed unto men once to die. Spiritual death is also separation, but it's a lot worse. A lot worse. Because it is separation of your spirit from God's spirit for all of eternity. No second chance. No beer parties in hell with your buddies. Right? There, there's, there's, there's complete and total aloneness and punishment in that second death. And so this is why Jesus is saying, a tower here, pilot there, it, everyone is going to die because we live in a sin-cursed world and some atrocity may befall us at some point. God forbid that some atrocity could happen as happened in Texas at Grace Baptist. God forbid that you get on the road today and, and some car hits you and the sovereignty of God, you're taken immediately to heaven. We live in a sin-cursed world. Some drunk could kill us today. Some robber could come to our... Anything could happen to us. We all understand that. So Jesus is saying that's not, that's not as important as avoiding the second death. And you can only do... right Unless you're a good person, you're all likewise perish. You must repent. So if you must repent, I'm sure you want to know what that is. Right? I mean, it just astonishes me. It, it, it astonishes me that there could be people who can hear about the second death that Scripture talks about, the ultimate separation of us and God in a place called hell. A real, Luke 16 talks about it. We'll get to it in a minute, in a couple months but they can just be so irrationally disconnected from that truth that they don't care. What is repentance? Is repentance public crying? An emotional movement of our spirits towards God? That's why I talk about theology of repentance. It, at its heart, at its core, the word repentance means to change. And again, this is the most important part because what I want you to do here as you think about this is, is ask yourself, have you repented? Everybody should ask themselves. Children, teens, adults, every person should be focused for the next five minutes. That's all going to be five more minutes. Have I repented? 
Because if I haven't repented, what? You'll perish. You'll likewise perish. So you must repent. So this is what it involves. It involves change, but it involves the whole person. There are three aspects of repentance that must be true of you if you want to do what Christ is commanding here and settle with you. First of all, you have to repent intellectually, which means you must intellectually agree with God that you are a sinner. You have defied his commandments in your own rebellion. You have lived your own way, and by nature you are a sinner. You acknowledge that intellectually before the Lord. You believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. I want to tell you that this is where most of the world stops. This is where most of the world stops. And that's why I brought the question up to you this morning, Derek, because it was on my heart and mind for the message today. Because can a person say, oh, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and I'm a sinner. And everybody rubber stamps them, Christian. But they have not repented. Coming to Christ is a two-sided coin. It does take belief and trust, but it also takes repentance. And an intellectual repentance is an acknowledgement to God that we are a sinner. I have yet to meet the person. I'm serious. I have yet to meet the person that has told me that they are not a sinner. You'd think that with all the smart Alex I've met in my life, and I'm kind of a smart Alec too, that when I said, do you believe that you're a sinner, that one person would say, no. Now they do say they're a good person but I've never had a person not acknowledge intellectually that they're a sinner. Never. Does that mean everybody I've ever met is going to heaven? I sit across from people and I say, tell me why you think you're a Christian. Tell me why you think you're going to heaven. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. I probe further. I probe further. I, you know, I guess Jesus did meet a guy like that, right? Jesus did meet the guy who said he'd never sinned, right? But he didn't. He wasn't willing to follow him, the rich young ruler I'm thinking about. So we must... Repent intellectually. Have you, I mean, put a check mark by the box in your mind. Have you acknowledged to God your sinfulness and recognize that that sinfulness deserves your spiritual death? That you have nothing good within you that will somehow overcome it? Acknowledge your complete depravity before God and repent of it. Second, it involves repenting emotionally. That is actually having a godly sorrow for our sin, a remorse over it, right? This talks about in 2 Corinthians, where, where worldly sorrow produces grief. I'm really sorry I did that. I'm sorry for my sins. Sorry you got caught more like it. Or sorry for the consequences that has come upon you. Jimmy Swaggart come to mind. I have sinned. Remember this? Is that repentance because he's showing some public remorse? He's right back into it. And it, we, we've all known people like that, whether they be pastors or whatever, that, that, that have shown this worldly sorrow, that they've even cried tears. Godly sorrow is the conviction and the weight of the guilt of your sin that you realize you have offended your creator, this holy God who made you and gave you life. And if you're 40, under 46, has protected you from death and graced you common grace-wise to give you life, breath, health, and strength, and you've sinned against him. Have you emotionally demonstrated sorrow for that? You don't even have to say the words, I'm sorry to God, but it's that remorseful weight that comes over you. That's part of repentance too. But that's not all. Some people like to go to that step. Well, I believe Jesus Christ died for sin, and I'm really, really sorry. I am. I'm really sorry. I feel really bad about that. And they do. They do. They still have not repented. 
Because repentance, third aspect of it, is a volitional repentance. There's an intellectual repentance, an emotional repentance, and there is a volitional repentance, which is defined as this, a change of my will resulting in an action. A transformation. We've heard it said simply, and, and I define it for children or teens, I might define repentance as turning from our sin and turning unto God. It's a change, total change of direction. True repentance is acknowledging our sinfulness and our guilt before God, feeling that godly sorrow and remorse and even expressing it, but then turning in our actions and now demonstrating that Christ truly has gripped us and we are his. I'm not just happy because I think I'm a Christian, I'm going to avoid hell and the judgment, but now my life is his and I live for him and I demonstrate repentance. The person in the Bible the most to me that demonstrates this is Zacchaeus. No question. I'm going to your house today. Right? You'll have that song in your head the rest of the day. Come down. And he had ripped people off. Well, I'm really sorry about that, Lord. Will you forgive me? What does he do? He, takes, he goes back and finds those people and pays them back four times the amount that he had owed them. Transformation of life. No doubt we'll see Zacchaeus in heaven because he repented. Unless you do what I just described, you're going to hell. Children, unless you do this, you will perish. Teens, unless you do this, you're going to hell. doesn't matter your dad's a pastor. doesn't matter your parents are here. doesn't matter. You have to do this. You must personally feel the weight of your sin, acknowledge it to God, and change your mind about it, and your life is completely turned over to God. So because of this, Jesus tells an ex a parable to explain what this means. I'm almost done. I'm sorry, I'm just so burdened for the lost in our auditorium today. In verses 6 to 9, he continues by telling this parable of, repentance, or of, of this fig tree, and I wish we had more time, to show us what repentance is. Isn't that great? You're supposed to settle with your accuser. Now you know the answer. How do I settle with my accuser? What's the answer? Yeah, we've got to repent. I've got to repent. And I explained to you what that meant. Mind, emotion, will, all those things. Total change, complete change in regards to how we feel about our sin, how we think about our sin. It doesn't mean perfection, but it means a new life direction. So here's what it looks like. A man had a fig tree, planted his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and didn't find any. Callback is to Isaiah 5, really, the, the nation of Israel. Fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel, but it can apply, too, to all people. He said to the vine dresser, look at this, he said to the vine dresser, so we have two characters here. We have the man, the owner of the vineyard, and we have a vine dresser, the caretaker of the vineyard. So we have two people. He says, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? That's the owner saying that. He, this is the caretaker, saying, sir, let it alone this year too until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it bears fruit next year, good. But if it's not, you can cut it down. So there's two people in the parable. Who do they symbolize? There's the owner and there's the vine dresser. What is the owner's desire? What does the owner want? If somebody answer out loud, what's the owner want to do with this fig tree that's not doing anything? Yeah, destroy it. It's taking up my property. Let's plant something that, that matters. The owner is all about judgment. And the caretaker of the vineyard says, do you remember what our theme was today? Remember what our theme of worship was today? The long sufferings and the patience of Christ. 
this is going to be such a blessing to you if you listen to it. Who's the owner of the vineyard? Who's that symbolize? God. God is a God of justice, of holiness. Now, God is also God of mercy, but in this parable, this, the, the, the nature of God is cut that tree down. It has not repented because it has not borne any fruit. There's no proof. There's no transformation of life. There's no, there's, we talk about it with these cherry trees out here. Once that cherry tree stops bearing cherries, we're cutting it down because it's useless. And a person who claims to have repented but doesn't show any fruit, this, it's over. Judgment is coming. This, the last two chapters have been all about judgment. And the caretaker says, hold your horses. Think of the mercy of Christ here. Let's give it some more time. Let's dig down to its roots. Let's care for it a little bit. The roots are representative of the heart. Let's get, let's get at this. Let's even fertilize it. Let's get some of the word in there. Let's let the spirit do its work. Let's give this tree more time. But ultimately, if next year it doesn't bear fruit, then we will cut it down. Could it be that God and Christ in their mercy and patience are giving you the time to respond to him and to repent? Because unless you do, you will likewise perish. The astounding mercy and grace here. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4 is a beautiful verse. It talks about the mercy and patience and forbearance of God. Shouldn't that lead you to repent? Instantly, God should incinerate all of us right now. If a ball of fire came from heaven and exploded this church, it would be totally just of God to do that. And those of you who have not yet repented now are completely separate from God and in hell forever. And God is totally just and righteous to do that. And Jesus says, I love this person. Give them some more time. And my, my plea to you is that you repent. That you turn from your sin and completely trust Christ and evidence it in fruit this cherry tree doesn't like think and push out the fruit, right? It just, it just produces it because it's connected to the vine. John 15 is another illustration of that. Has your life changed? Are the fruit of the spirits evident? When we sing, do you, does the fruit of praise come off your lips? The fruit of righteous living or the fruit of obedience service? John the Baptist, when announcing Christ, says to the, the scoffers and the onlookers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath bring forth fruits that are in keeping with repentance and let us not water down this message to others and confirm others in their non-salvation because they simply acknowledge jesus christ died for their sin and there is no i mean what kind of idiot would i look like if this tree out here was dead for 10 years and i said that's a very beautiful tree it's producing wonderfully You'd look at me like I was a moron. But we love our friends and family so much that we're afraid to say the hard things to them like, unless you repent, you are going to hell. But I know Christ. I prayed a prayer. I walked the aisle. I shook the pastor's hand. Nonsense! You must repent, and I've explained what it is. Boy, I urge you to do it. And I, I just focus not only on the judgment of God, the owner of the vineyard who says, let's cut it down, but the mercy and patience of Christ. Give it some more time.
but you don't know how much time you got. You don't know how much time you got. Let's pray about it. Father, we are so grateful to you, to our Savior, Jesus Christ, our compassionate, kind, loving Savior, who has granted to us in his mercy this moment to hear this message. And now what we do with it is our responsibility. I know many in this room agree with all that I've said because they truly know Christ. But there are some in this room, whether child or teen or adult, who has never done what we've just explained. May their pride not keep them from doing that and may the Spirit of God move quickly and indiscernibly in their hearts right now at this very moment that they might turn from their sin in mind and in emotion and with their will and avoid the coming judgment of God. Thank you for the joy we've had of being together in your house. Please do not let the word be snatched up quickly by Satan, but may it take root in the hearts of those who need to respond to it at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.